We're in the fourth week of an eight-week series called The Three Greats. You know, if you've been with us, we started four weeks ago with the great confession, how three words can change your life, how three words will determine everything in your life, will be a guide for how you think and feel and act. If you have these three words in mind, you'll come closer to the kingdom that we've been talking about. And those three words are, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Fundamental teaching, foundational teaching of the New Testament of Jesus is that great confession that Jesus is Lord. And then we began considering last week the great commandment read here for you again. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, strength. In other words, with everything. Everything, all of our love to God and realizing that that only can happen as God fills us and empowers us because we love because he first loved us. And this morning now we take on the second half of that statement read again for you this morning, to love your neighbor as yourself. To understand that who I am, who you are, in relationship to God will shape who you are or who I am in relationship to others. Do you see that? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, to have all my love to, for God enables me to do the second command, to love my neighbor, to be a neighbor. Who I am in relationship to God shapes who I am in relationship to you. So we look at John, uh, sorry, Luke 10, and we have there a story, a picture of a lawyer who has an agenda who comes to test Jesus. And he comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You'll notice throughout scripture, and particularly in the gospels when Jesus is interchanging with other people, he rarely answers a question directly because the question, particularly for lawyers, usually has something underneath it, uh, an agenda, uh, something, you know, the first question is the easy one. It's usually the second or third where they're going to zing you. And Jesus knows this. And so Jesus knows that what the question was really isn't the question. And so he responds to his question with another question. And he says, you're a lawyer. What does scripture say? And then he says, how do you read it? And I love those words because I think here Jesus is going to the heart of the problem with the lawyer and with you and me, particularly you and me who've been, if we have been grown up in the scriptures, grown up in the Lord, and we look at scripture as something that we can kind of master that we read and interpret the word. We open the word and we read and interpret it. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. The scriptures read and interpret us. See the difference? And so when Jesus says, how do you read it? He's speaking to this kind of spiritual arrogance. This kind of I know. And he does know because he responds immediately. The Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. 
this man with any other Orthodox Jews, Jew prays that prayer every morning and every evening. Says the Shema, love the Lord with your, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They've been repeating that over and over and over and over for years. So Jesus says, yes. Do this, and you'll live. And if the story ended there, it would be good. But it doesn't end there, because now the real agenda is revealed. And the scripture comments on this by saying that the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, says, okay, but who's my neighbor? Now, the context here in the first century Jewish world, the correct answer for neighbor has come to be understood as a fellow Jew. I love people like me. Jesus sees through this, sees through to the heart, the presumption, the pride. So instead of answering his question, Jesus tells a story, a parable. And like any good story, it has a setting, a plot, characters, a conflict, and a resolution. Let's look at it. The setting is a notoriously dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you've ever traveled in the Middle East, have been to uh, the Holy Land, you'll know that uh, Jerusalem is on a hill. It's just under about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is down by a little bit north of the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth. The Dead Sea is about 1,300 feet below sea level. Jericho is about 800, 900 feet below sea level. So it's a half-mile journey up or down. And we have in this story a man who's traveling the 18-mile journey across this arid land, arid in Jerusalem, and then just totally barren. Nothing can grow down as, along the way down towards Jericho. And as it happens... This road winding like this, uh, lots of places for thieves and robbers to hide. In fact, even to this day, while it's a road, it's, it's not an easy place to travel. And in that day, you would always travel in a group, very rarely alone. It was called the way of blood because so many people were accosted during this trip. So that's the setting. The plot is a man is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho and he falls victim to these robbers who, who take his clothes, take his clothes because they want any, everything of value, beat him and leave him for dead. That's the plot. And then Jesus uh, introduces three characters. The priest, who would be a, a temple official, someone who... Uh, offered ritual sacrifices, someone who would be steeped in what the law was and, and serving God in the temple, a Levite who was privileged by heritage to be uh, a teacher and a judge, one who was thoroughly familiar with the law, and a Samaritan, an outcast, a foreigner, to the lawyer's mind and any Jewish person's mind at the time, 
someone who was unclean, and someone towards whom there was a personal animus. Those are the characters. Here's the conflict. A man is accosted, left for dead. And as the lawyer's hearing it, here come the heroes. Here come the holy people, the people who know the law, the people who are expected to do right. They should be the heroes of this story in the lawyer's mind. But there's a problem. Because if the priest touches this dead man, he will be who he might have presumed to be dead, or even if he was a foreigner, he would be presumed to be ritually unclean, and therefore he couldn't do his work in the temple. And since his work in the temple of offering sacrifice to God was so important, he went to the other side and left. Then comes a Levite, another would-be hero, who knows that if the man is not a Jew, he has no responsibility. So let's not look too closely and go to the other side because we have important things to do for God, you see? You see the mindset? This is the problem when you and I read Scripture as a set of rules and laws rather than God's invitation to see Jesus as Lord in a radically life-changing, love-altering way. You see, in God's economy, you can't be right with God if you're wrong with a brother or sister. You got that? You see that? You can't fully love God with all your heart and mind and strength if you love a brother or sister conditionally. The two don't go together. If we are going to be followers of Jesus, who is Lord, then we have to remove all pride, all prejudice, and see our brother and sister, our neighbor, ourselves, as children of God, deeply loved by God, and in need of love with one another. How many of us today, even as we sit here thinking, believing and wanting to believe that we're in love with God, but we're wrong with a brother or sister? You can't have both together. The unexpected ending. Enter the Samaritan, the villain, the person who should be the object of scorn in any story in this day. And this villain, as soon as he sees the person laying on the road, with compassion in the heart, goes over and picks him up and washes his wounds and bandages them with, with ointments that any traveler would, would care and keep because of this very thing, because you, would, you could fall, you could injure yourself. There was no water to wash the wounds. You had oil, you had, you had wine, and that's how you cleansed it. But not only that, he didn't leave him there. He puts him on his, on his beast of burden, the thing he was carrying him. He gets off, puts the man on, and takes him to an inn and cares for him all night because it's not until the next morning we learn that he pays the innkeeper, says, here's, here's the cost of tonight. 
please care for this man and whatever cost you have, I'll, I'll repay. In other words, unconditional love out of compassion for the person in the moment. And I love the ending here because it's a twist. Because you and I even now are thinking, okay, here's the question Jesus is going to ask. He's going to say, which of these three people, the, the, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of them loved their neighbor? Isn't that what we're expecting? But that's not what he asks. He twists it. And he says, which of these three men was a neighbor to the man? Do you see what's going on here? Do you see how Jesus has flipped the question to pierce into our hearts as well as the lawyer's heart? The, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? In other words, that's something I can have control over. I can decide whether you are my neighbor or not based upon whether I like you or not or you look right or whatever else. Who is my neighbor? See, that's his question. But that's not Jesus' question. Jesus asked, who is a neighbor to the man? And that clearly can only be the Samaritan. In other words, the moral of Jesus' story is not the victim is your neighbor, but you become a neighbor by self-sacrificing unconditional love. Do you see the difference? It's everything. It's the secret to understanding how we could love our neighbor as ourselves because it's not who you are in relationship to me, that's driven by pride and judgment. It's who I am in relationship to you under God's love. Do you see this? Do you see the difference? Love is a verb, not a noun. It's something you do. And it has to come from the depths of a being that is filled with the love of God such that it's poured out into the love of others. You see, Jesus does not preach tolerance. He preaches unconditional agape love, which goes way beyond tolerance. This is why Jesus says, listen to these words, when he says them on the Sermon of, on the Mount. Speaking to the people gathered there, he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Anyone can do that. Don't even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. 
you don't have to go too far in our day to hear a lot of people say, we need to love our neighbor. We say it all the time. We need to love our, our neighbor as the immigrant. We need to love our neighbor as whatever the person out there in need. And it's true. But what we see is hating our enemy. We see that in the way people act, the way they communicate, what they write on social media, and how we posture ourselves for and against others, including in the church. Jesus says, if you love God truly with all your being, a wellspring of love will come up within your soul that you can be a neighbor, that is, you can love every person, regardless of who they are or what they've done. Is there someone in your life that you're holding like this or disparaging over here. God commands you to love him and to love others. Listen, there are a thousand things God wants to do in your life personally. A thousand things that God wants to do in the life of this church. But there's one single thing that stands in the way. Pride. Seeking to justify ourselves. Unwilling to admit fault. Unwilling to go the extra mile. Unwilling to see what's in front of us because we have a log in our eye. It's pride is the log in our eyes that prevents us from loving. And every one of us has a personal log, an individual application to that log that's keeping us from seeing. One of those things is claiming false humility. Do you want to experience love in your marriage, in your friendships, in, the, in, in this church? Well, who has God placed in your path? Be a neighbor. Love. I want to conclude our time with a time of prayer, of silent reflection. If it's helpful to you to come to the altar here and pray with someone, there'll be someone there if you'd like to come privately there, but you don't have to come at all. What I'd like you to do is just think about what God might be saying to you by his spirit right now. What is the fear or the pride or the self-justification that has led us into seeing others as things, not neighbors? How is God calling you right now to be a neighbor? So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and pray and however it's helpful for you to 
think about God, to just silently speak back to God some things about what you might need to confess, what we together might need to confess about God's call to love him and others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son Jesus, who is Lord. And so now we ask that your lordship and the empowering presence of God's spirit would enter our lives right now and bring to mind a person who we need to be a neighbor to, who you are calling us to love. As this person or group come to mind, would you confess if you have the conviction that you have not loved God with all your heart, soul, and strength because you have not loved your neighbor? ask God individually and together to remove the log of pride from our hearts and minds, from the eye that sees things only through our perspective. Father, we're so grateful that you are unconditionally loving that there's nothing that has come into our mind here, no conviction of heart or sense of failure that could ever separate us from your love. And so would you encourage us now with the forgiveness that we have in Jesus and through his life, his death, and his resurrection to enable us with the power of God to love you and having loved you, love one another. We thank you, Father, that there's nothing you ask for us to do that you haven't already provided for us to accomplish. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stay in this place. Don't leave where the Spirit has you right there. Stay in that spot. Stay in that space. If you want someone to pray with you, that altar over there is reserved for that. Or you can pray over you or pray with you. Over here, you can go and pray by yourself. Sometimes in these moments, God, God wants us to get up, stand up, and go forward. Just to say I'm yours again Lord or to say Lord forgive me or to say I need you Lord for this situation I need to love others better Lord Lord I need to get this pride out of the way it can be a myriad of different things we just want to stay in this moment so we're going to stay here for a second and um, in a moment we'll just sing uh, a song over you but just allow the Spirit to continue to speak and to move. 
have his way.
Thank you, Spirit. Thank you, God. Father God, we love you. We want to change. We want to be transformed into your likeness. We want to live how you want us to live. We want to put away the things that aren't of you. So, Lord, take the pride away. Take the false humility away. Take the resistance to reconciliation away. Bring restoration, Lord. Bring healing and grace and love. Pour it on us, Lord. Pour it on us through your spirit. We receive it. We thank you for what you've already been doing. And we thank you for what you will do. You're a kind and gentle and loving God, full of compassion. And we have hope. We have hope in you this morning. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.